welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract Podcast is your window inside innovation efforts at the Pentagon. Tesseract is an office within the Air Force in the logistics community. So that incorporates maintenance, logistics, force protection, and civil engineering. Big variety of airmen that we get to work with on a daily basis. Today, we had an awesome opportunity to sit down with Dan Ward. Dan is the Yoda of defense innovation. He is incredible. Dan is the author of three books, Lift, The Simplicity Cycle, and Fire, his latest being Lift, and he's also publishing a new book soon. The objective of today's podcast is for you to meet Dan and understand his perspective on innovation. Some of those key results are going to look like, well, what does failure mean? What does innovation mean to Dan? Also, what speed, thrift, and simplicity adds to projects, and also the importance of diversity in innovation operations. All right, let's go. I want to dig into all three of your books a little bit, like the concepts of each of them. Um, Sure, sure. um, So let's begin with a little bit of your background and like where you've been through, you know, your Air Force career, and then what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, my background, I spent a little over 20 years on active duty in the Air Force as an engineer and program manager. I specialized in rapid innovation, so leading small teams with short schedules and tight budgets to quickly design, develop, and deliver uh, advanced new technologies for military systems. So uh, I spent some time in the intelligence community, uh, a couple of tours in the Air Force Research Lab, um, did a tour at the Pentagon, uh, Afghanistan, uh, and then um, just as I was about to hang up my combat boots and, and retire from the Air Force, uh, I ended up with this, this two-book deal with HarperCollins, which was just bonkers and amazing and, and far beyond anything I had ever envisioned or imagined. Uh, and that was those first two books, Fire, which came out right before I retired. Simplicity Cycle came out right after. Um, did the independent consulting thing for a little while. Uh, and then about four years ago, I started working at uh, the MITRE Corporation, which is a terrific um, not-for-profit, um, working in the public interest. Uh, we're a systems engineering company, and we primarily work with the federal government uh, to help solve problems to make the world a safer place. i um, been having a, a blast here. Uh, and then my, my third book, Lift, uh, just came out, uh, gosh, I guess about a year ago now. Amazing. I have a question about the simplicity cycle and the genesis of that. In fire towards the end, you mentioned the simplicity cycle. Now, did you discover the simplicity cycle as you were writing fire? And then you (laughs) grew the simplicity cycle into what it is now? Um, Or how did or did you have both of those in mind already? Just curious. Yeah, great question. Actually, it was the other way around. The simplicity cycle was the book that I first pitched. Um, The first book that I really wrote and and that's what I wrote my proposal for. And I mentioned that that the simplicity cycle was part of a larger concept that uh, was called FIST at the time for fast, inexpensive, simple, and tiny. And I said, this is just the S in FIST. And the publisher said, oh, well, tell us more about that idea. And <clears throat> we eventually sort of rebranded it from, you know, the kind of the military combat FIST type thing to, to fire, more of a, a commercial tool. Uh, and so FIRE stands for Fast, Inexpensive, Restrained, and Elegant. Uh, and so now the the S in Simplicity Cycle is the E in Elegant for, for the FIRE <laughs> model. 
Um, and they said, hey, we'll take both books. And in fact, can you write the fire book first? Um, and we'll get to the simplicity cycle later. So, so yeah, the, the timing of this was all very, um, very interesting. I like it. I like it. How would you define innovation? You said you were in high speed, just a- aggressive innovation, right? So like, how would you define that subject? Yeah, um, you know, innovation is one of those words that gets used more often than it gets defined. And I think it's really important to have a good definition of that word. Uh, so my definition, the, the definition I use with, with my team and in my, my writing and my consulting is uh, novelty with impact. Uh, and I love that definition because it's just three words, novelty with impact, so it's easy to remember. Uh, I like it also because it, it's broad enough to be applicable in a wide range of situations. So novelty can refer to new technologies, which is what we typically think of for innovation. But novelty could be new processes, new organizational structures, uh, new communication methods. Uh, and then impact can be saving time, saving money, saving lives, you know, whatever the measures of merit are, whatever the, the value, the problem solving, the, the thing that we're making a difference for, that fits under that, that impact umbrella. But the best thing about that definition is that it points to two really important questions. What novelty are you trying to introduce? And what impact are you trying to have? And if we can get a clear, solid understanding or a clear, solid answer to those two questions, now we can have a really intelligent, thoughtful conversation about innovation. Uh, so that's a, a, an approach that we use a, a lot. We like to introduce that, that definition, novelty with impact, and then ask people to talk about what is different about what you're doing and, and what difference are you trying to make? Uh, so that's the other definition we use is something different that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Was there a common theme of impact? Like, did you have a specific group in mind or a specific objective as you sought impact um, through your innovation efforts? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, as a, as a military technologist, the impact I'm primarily, primarily looking to have uh, is around making our, our country safer. You know, it's about improving our defense posture. So that ranges everything from like not wasting time and money on, on things, because if we're wasting time and money, that does not make the country safer and stronger. Uh, also to taking advantage of some of the technological advances in the world, whether it's hypersonics or cyber or AI, or, you know, kind of pick your, pick your flavor. Um, and so making sure that the defense department has a good understanding and is a good partner, uh, and as a, is a good customer, you know, a customer that companies would, would want to work with. Uh, and so one of the common themes that runs through all of this, like the way we have the most impact, the, the programs and projects that have, have been the most innovative and most impactful tend to be, um, tend to have short schedules, tight budgets, and a deep commitment to simplicity. So I say if, if we have speed, thrift, and simplicity as kind of our touchstones, and we allow speed, thrift, and simplicity to be our, our guide stars for all the decisions we're making, whether it's, you know, writing your requirement or, um, you know, designing your system architecture and kind of everything in between, speed, thrift, and simplicity seem to align or to correlate really well with our, our most important, impactful, innovative results. So are all of those types of innovations through, you know, speed, thrift, and simplicity, are those all quick wins or are there uh, BHAGs, right? You know, are there, right. there uh, those big, hairy, audacious goals like that take a long time? How do you balance 
uh, quick wins and those long-term goals uh, while you know keeping this focus? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question, and and I think it's both. You know, we talk about um, seedling projects, which tend to be small investments, kind of quick turnaround. We see if we can get a little bit of growth. We can get, see if something can take some root, and we compare them with moonshots, the big, you know, massive, big, hairy, audacious goal type projects. So we have seedlings, we have moonshots. I like to talk about moon seeds. <laughs> you know, okay. it's the small little investments that we make that can still have the the oversized impact. Uh, and so I write about a lot of those in in the in auction in all my books, but in, in fire in particular, you know, about the um, the small teams with short schedules, tight budgets who just change the world by delivering something that has has a big impact. Uh, and so when we talk about novelty with impact uh, as our definition of innovation, you know, impact is the thing that matters. If you're going to do one or the other, do do impact. Novelty is fine, but only in so far as it is impactful, you know, as long as it has to make a difference. Um, but having said that, like you can do the, you know, you can spend a lot of time and a lot of money with a big team developing uh, a large uh, project that still fits that definition of speed, thrift, and simplicity because these are not absolute values, they're, they're relative values. So in, in FIRE, I, I write about the Navy's Virginia-class submarine program. These are submarine, these submarines cost $2 billion a piece, you know, and it takes years to build one of them. Um, and so that's a lot of time and a lot of money and they are nuclear powered submarines, so really complicated systems. Um, but I contend and, and I make the case in, in FIRE that it is the smallest, cheapest, coziest, fastest little you know, instance of a nuclear-powered submarine that you're likely to find because it was less than half the cost of its predecessor, uh, and it's just a, it's a terrific story of of what does speed, thrift, and simplicity look like in a big, complicated, you know, expensive in an absolute sense uh, type type system, and and you can totally bring those principles to bear and those practices to bear uh, in something like that. Does the Air Force have an equivalent to the success of that project? Um, oh, sure, sure. I mean, there's, there's, uh, because I, I have I to of... say, because I, I noticed, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, the P 51 and the, and the, your, your favorite, the F 22, right? Sure. Yeah. Your, your favorite aircraft of all time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and we talked about those hangups and, uh, the misapplication of resources. And, um, you know, if you want to talk a little bit, uh, you know, about that piece of it, um, but also, uh, you have 20 years in the Air Force, yet focused on a Navy success, right? So, is there is there something behind that? Uh, what uh, what would you say the Navy might be doing differently, or hmm. um, or are there Air Force examples that you just didn't touch on specifically in the book? Yeah, yeah. So I I, um, I kind of bleed purple. Uh, I'm very much a, a joint, uh, uh, I have a joint orientation. Both my grandfathers were in the Navy. A couple of great grandfathers and great grandmother or two were in the Navy. My dad was in the Air Force. Uh, so I'm fourth generation military. Uh, you know, this is definitely the, the family business. And um, I've just really always enjoyed and appreciated the opportunities to work with, with the Marines, with the Army, with the Navy, and, and all those opportunities to you know, kind of span some boundaries. So it was very much a deliberate choice to say, you know, let me find a good Navy example. Let me find a good Army example and talk about those. 
you know, I think there's something to be said for inter-service rivalry. I think that does, you know, some competition helps make us all better. But there's also something to be said for inter-service cooperation. And to say, you know, if I'm going to criticize somebody, let me criticize the systems from my house. And let me say some nice things about my neighbor. You know, let me say some nice things about the, uh, the Navy, which isn't to say the Navy does everything perfect and the Air Force, you know, doesn't do anything great. Like you find good in both uh, and challenges in both. And so I kind of have a, a big collection of stories and examples that I, I like to pull out, you know, and sort of illustrate these principles and practices, you know, and then there's NASA. Uh, I love NASA's stories because everybody loves NASA. They're, they're exciting. They're, they're a government organization who has exploration in their mission. Like their job is to boldly go uh, and, and just they do, they do some really great work and, and they, uh, they really help exemplify uh, a lot of the, the things that I write about too. So NASA or SpaceX? Uh, who, who would you pick? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I love both for different reasons. Or Blue Origin. Um, I, can't, I can't forget them. Yeah, yeah, SpaceX, Blue Origin, all, all the commercial space uh, entities out there are just doing some some really cool stuff. I think they do have very different missions and different charters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I were to go work for one of them, uh, you know, I'd probably go work for NASA. Uh, just again, t- because the skills and expertise that I bring to bear are more on the government side of things um, and, and less on the commercial side. Uh, but I love that NASA is building a, a tight partnership with a lot of these commercial space entities. And then that's really the, the secret sauce is mm-hmm. to build partnerships, build strong collaborative partnerships where, you know, each side is really able to bring their, their strength to bear uh, on the shared problems that they're working to solve. I have space barons on my reading list this year, so I'm not sure if you've read Ooh. that one or not. So I have not read that one yet, but it's, I've, I've, I've heard good things. I won't buy it on Amazon. I promise. <laughs> yeah, <I'm just> <laughs> um, so I'm glad you brought up the, um, joint war fighting, you know, joint cooperation, that is going to be an essential element to our success as we, you know, push forward and, you know, you know, the next, in the next fight, you know, if you will, the Mm -hmm. future fight. Um, We are only as successful as our weakest link and that works and that is applicable to the Department of Defense as a whole. So I'm glad you, you brought that piece up and I, and I, and I really appreciated the the Navy example. My my grandfather, he was actually a submariner on diesels. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, so it's like anytime I see, you know, submarine history, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What's well, it's particularly interesting, my my grandfather, who was in the Navy, was a naval aviator. Uh, and my dad, who was in the Air Force, never had an airplane-related job. So my, my Navy grandfather had more airplane experience than, than my Air Force dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've yet to be in an Air Force aircraft. Um, so <laughs> nice. it's great. <laughs> Um, how do we go about as uh, innovators in the Department of Defense as a whole to ed- how do we go about educating uh, senior leaders on this perspective of you know um, simple uh, fast innovation you know using mm. using the fire method uh, keeping um, you know the fundamentals in mind and um, and the impact in mind, and that impact being uh, the safety of all Americans, and also uh, keeping the end user in mind. You know, particularly in the Air Force, you know, the airmen, but not to forget sailors, Marines, soldiers, um, Coast Guardsmen, and uh, what's uh, what are, what's the Space oh, Force? The now? Guardians. The Guardians. Right? Space yeah. Guardians. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I do wonder what does that? the Coast Guard think about the Space Force being called Guardians because. 
the Coasties were called Guardians for a little while there, and then they everybody calls them Coasties anyway. So. They got to feel some type <laughs> of way about it. That was my first right. thought. But so, yeah. <laughs> so how do we go about educating senior leaders just across the board as to the importance of um, uh, you know speed, thrift, and simplicity and innovation, and and understanding that it's not just the the high tech, flashy F thirty five or F twenty two that's gonna win wars in the future. It, you know, it, it's the simple things. Yeah, I, I think there's sort of two main keys to education, whether we're talking about educating senior leaders or, you know, fifth graders. Uh, and I think that the two keys are a solid vocabulary. Like we need to equip people with the terms and concepts related to the topic, whether it's, you know, algebra or, or innovation or space exploration. So having those terms and concepts gives us our mental models to begin understanding and, and wrestling with how do we do this. And along with the vocabulary, we need the experience. So, you know, that experiential learning is just so key. Uh, and so I, I like to say, we begin with saying, what is innovation? Innovation is novelty with impact. That leads to some questions. What novelty are you trying to introduce? What impact are you trying to have? Okay, let's do an experiment. And the experiment is going to be very simple. My, my model for an experiment is an intervention followed by an observation. So we're going to change something. And then we're going to reflect, we're going to observe, we're going to collect some data, we're going to see what we learn from that change. Uh, and the purpose of doing an experiment, and I think this is so key, uh, the, the reason we do an experiment is not to make an improvement directly. The reason we do an experiment is to get some validated data, to, to learn something. And so if we do an experiment and that experiment teaches us something, that is a successful experiment. And again, this gets back to we having this, this vocabulary of innovation, experimentation, intervention, observation, make a change, collect the data, and we're going to call that a win. Um, now we begin doing it. Well, what are some examples of some experiments that we could do? Um, you know, Again, that's going to vary from, from genre to genre and whatever category of work you're doing. Well, we could experiment with our processes. We could experiment with a new policy. We could experiment with a new organizational structure. We could experiment with I mean, a really simple experiment is let's have fewer meetings for the next four weeks. Let's make our meetings a little bit shorter over the next four weeks. And at the end of these four weeks, let's come back and, and reconvene and say, did, did things get better over the past four weeks when we had fewer meetings or had shorter meetings? You know, did the quality of work, what was the quality of work changed? How's morale? Like, what are, what are the impacts? What, what can we observe from, you know, what happened when we made this change? Very simple, very, you know, modest type of experiment that any of us could do. But we can do experiments with, with rapid development, with, with prototyping, you know, for in the in the technology area. And so using using prototypes to do experiments is a well documented method. Like that's there's tons and tons of books on on all of that. And I, I don't have a lot new to add to that other than to say, hey, this is a really good idea. And to the point of senior leaders, like I find different people get convinced by different things. Some people want to see data. Some people need to hear stories. Some people want to read the comic book version of it. Uh, and again, so understanding what will convince that individual, what will convince that senior leader, or what will convince that, that person, that, that stakeholder, that person who's involved with this. Um, understanding what convinces them, what, what, would, what would kind of move them to, to additional action um, is a, sort of a step one. And I found that compelling stories of experiments 
is usually a pretty effective way to, to help people understand. Cause like, this is what we attempted. This is what we observed. This is what we accomplished. Uh, and that's why all my books are really about, you know, uh, oftentimes firsthand, but, but, you know, they're really about stories of experiments and, you know, what, what are the data, what, what can we conclude from these experiments? Amazing. I love it. <laughs> what are your thoughts on complexity? Oh, you know, um, complexity is an ironically simple topic. Uh, and again, in, in keeping with that idea of, of having a good definition, my definition of complexity uh, is just consisting of interconnected parts. So something could, if it has a lot of interconnected parts, that, that is a high degree of complexity. If it has a small number of interconnected parts, then that is a low degree of complexity. Now, there is no moral judgment about whether one is better than the other. I'm not saying a good degree of complexity, that's a different assessment. But just understanding that, you know, if something that has a hundred parts, that would be a really complicated pencil sharpener and a really simple spacecraft, mm -hmm. right? And so the word, the number a hundred is, you know, that'll, that doesn't mean anything until you understand the context of, of the thing. So a pencil sharpener with a hundred parts is a really complicated pencil sharpener. Maybe we could simplify it. A spacecraft with a hundred parts is a really simple spacecraft. I think we've simplified that as much as we can. Maybe we need to make that better by adding some stuff to it. Uh, and so again, what, what complexity does for us, it helps us ask that question, how do we make it better? Uh, and if I can, can brag a little bit, my favorite subtitle of any of my books, although I guess I like all the subtitles, but the subtitle for the simplicity cycle is a field guide to making things better without making them worse. And, and that's what we're aiming to do when we're wrestling with issues of complexity. How do we make things better without making them worse? Um, and oftentimes we try to make things better by adding. We have this this additive mode that our, our brains get into. I add a feature, I add a function, I add a part. Uh, and that's how I've demonstrated that I did work. That's how I demonstrate that I improved the thing. You know, sometimes adding stuff makes the thing worse, makes it too complicated, too heavy, hard to maintain, hard to use, hard to learn. Uh, and so creation by subtraction uh, is a thing. Like we can improve a design, we can improve a PowerPoint slide, we can improve a system architecture. Sometimes the improvement requires taking something out uh, and that's a whole different mode. And it's, it's a different set of mental tools that we use. Uh, and that's what I try to introduce in the, in the simplicity cycle. And that is also, I like how you mentioned the features on the aircraft that immediately reminded me of John Boyd and the, the lightweight fighter projects mm. of the, you know, the um, YF-17 and then the, you know, and the F-16 um, how he saw all these features that were being added to aircraft. This is a waste of time. Right, right. Yeah, John Boyd's story and, and his experiments uh, were hugely influential in, in kind of my mental development. And as I explored these topics, uh, you can draw a direct line from uh, uh, Jim Burton's book, uh, The Pentagon Wars. Uh, the movie was good, the book's even better. Uh, but you can draw a direct line from that Pentagon Wars book to you know 90% of the things that I've written. I'm going to put that towards the top of my list this year. It's it's a terrific book. Writing and horrifying down. at the same time, but also terrific. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of also speaking of complexity, yeah, let, let's talk about people and and diversity and innovation because mm. people are complex, right? You know, there, there's nothing sure. there's nothing simple about a person. Uh, my favorite part of uh, of Lyft 
um, is I got I got to flip to it right now, and it was page one hundred five, where okay. you <laughs> the <laughs> where you just completely bolded, yeah. Overfiltering the talent pool limits people's ability to contribute and restricts the advancement of the field as a whole. Mm. And I think that is, and the the pages surrounding this um, magnified text. And right. he, and I was nope. He was making a very very strong point here as yep. to the importance of diversity in innovation and citing. Could we have gotten to manned flight, you know, faster if we had 50% or the excluded 50% of people integrated into, you know, these, you know, these projects, these failures, their insight, their way of thinking. And Mm. this is also, this also could be seen um, not only with genders, but also with, with race, with, you know, um, with cultural backgrounds, this can also be seen with whether you're an officer and enlisted, you know, this can be seen at all sorts of different levels. So I'd like to get your perspective on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is from uh, the third book lift, uh, which is subtitled, uh, flying machines that almost worked and the people who nearly flew them. (laughs) Bingo. (laughs) Our innovation lessons from flying machines that almost worked and the people who nearly flew them. So I'm looking at, uh, flying machines and, and aviation experiments from the late 1800s. So these are the people who were doing work in the decades before the Wright brothers. Uh, and the, the book really focuses on five primary inventors and experimenters uh, telling their stories. What did they attempt? What did they accomplish? What progress did they make? Uh, ultimately, none of them successfully built uh, a flying machine capable of carrying a person into the sky. You know, the Wrights did that, uh, but, but they made a lot of progress. And my favorite chapter in the book is the one that you just quoted, uh, the third chapter about Alberto Santos Dumont, who was a Brazilian living in Paris uh, and built these amazing airships. And <clears throat> the, the thing that was so striking as I did this research and studied these people is that the people who made the most progress were the bridge builders. Uh, the people who made the most progress were the ones who worked the most clo- who worked the closest with a diverse group of people. Uh, and all five of the main characters are all men. Uh, and I do address that, that fact that like, you know, women just socially and societally were not allowed to go to school and, and get into this kind of, kind of this, this sort of field. Um, but these five guys did work closely with women and they talked about it and they wrote about it. And I try to be very careful to refer to the right siblings or to the rights, not the right brothers. Because gang, their sister was involved. Their sister, uh, Catherine, was a, a major player in the work that they did. And, and Wilbur even said, "If, if I, I'm probably, I'll probably mess up the quote a little bit, but he, he basically said, if history remembers us in the area of aviation, uh, it must remember our sister, Catherine. And of course, we've completely forgotten about her and we called them the Wright brothers as if she, as if she didn't play a big role. Um, so all that to say is, is Diversity and inclusion are absolutely essential to innovation. And that is my professional opinion as a military technologist based on studying the data, the people who made the most progress, who had the most impact, uh, who solved 
really hard problems uh, are the ones who collaborated, collaborated most closely with a diverse group. Uh, and you're right, that ranges, you know, the full spectrum of diversity, gender, um, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic background, um, you know, able-bodied, you know, ver, you know, different levels of ability. Um, you know, uh, MITRE has a, a really uh, neat program going on around neurodiversity uh, and, you know, bringing people on the autism spectrum into work in, in this uh, field and making them welcome and included. And man, the, the impact of that, uh, I'm just putting different perspectives and, and different backgrounds, bringing them all to the table. Um, that is, if there's a secret, if there's a key, uh, that's it to, to really innovative problem solving. So yes, I'm super passionate about it. Um, and, you know, hopefully I'm sort of doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But also as an engineer and just as somebody who's looked at the data, man, it's doing it like this is the smart way to do it. Uh, you know, a homogenous group. And I think I, this is a line in the book too. Homogenous groups are less good at solving hard problems than diverse groups are. Uh, and the, the data, the data are just overwhelmingly clear on that. Um, so, yeah, if you're going to start somewhere, yeah, reach out beyond the usual suspects, mm -hmm. whatever those usual suspects might be in your particular field. Brilliant, just brilliant. Yeah, at a at Tesseract, we we have a very um, well, we have a diverse group of individuals. You know, we have half officers, half enlisted. You know, I love that diverse set just immediately right off the bat. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I think one of the one of the keys is to not be too satisfied too easily with our level of diversity. You know, they, uh, there's a saying like one is the new zero. Oh, we have one person of color and that counts. Oh, phew, we don't need to think about that anymore. Oh, we have one woman on the. So okay, now now we're good. Um, so that that and so I love that that your team has is really tackling like the full spectrum or a wide spectrum of uh, layers and types and flavors of diversity. That's so important. I. I do get bothered with the fact where it's like, you know, oh, this needs to be, to your point, like a check in the box. Like, okay, we're good. Like, right. no, we're not good. Right. Like, <laughs> we need to keep on, um, you know, reinforcing this into into culture just across the military, across the country. Um, so yep. I, I'm passionate about that as well. I'm really glad you brought up the right brothers and the right siblings. Um, right, right. I Last year, I read um, The Wright Brothers by David McCullough. It's somewhere back there in the, in yeah, the library. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, and he talks a lot about the sister, you know? And, right. and it's like, where where has she been the entire time? Why not put her in the title? Why right? not? Yeah. The, yeah, the Wright siblings, like the, the Wright family, you know? It's like, yeah, so th they had their first flight in 1903, and it wasn't until 2003 that the first book about Catherine Wright was published. Uh, it was titled The Wright Sister. Uh, it was a kid's book. And so even now, like what we 17, 18 years later, you know, there just still has not been a lot written about her, uh, despite Wilbur's pronouncement that like, please don't forget our sister. She was part of all of this and, and a really important contributor. To dig in a little bit uh, deeper into failure. So in your 20 mm -hmm. years in the Air Force, that couldn't have been all successes, right? You had to have failed every now and then. <laughs> All the time, and, for and the sure. stakes in the work that you, you know, do and that you did in the Air Force, the stakes are probably pretty high. You're right. working with some prominent stakeholders. You're working directly for the top. How did you communicate your failures 
to senior leaders and how did you ease that that burden or lessen that blow or to teach them and educate them like hey this is a learning experience Mm -hmm. and we are going to be better because of this despite the amount of money or the amount of time that we invested in this we're going to be better at the end of the day because of this failure yeah yeah Uh, i i figured out pretty early on that there's at least two different types of failure uh, and I write about this in, in FIRE. I talk about epic failure versus optimal failure. So an epic failure costs you a lot and teaches you a little. So if we spend 20 years and $10 billion to develop some new weapon system and it fails and it doesn't work out, that's an epic failure. That's Boy, nice. That was a lot of time, a lot of money. And you know, there's not a lot of learning opportunity from that because we've, we've been so committed and so invested in, into this. And 10 years later, now we finally learn that it wasn't a good idea. Oh, it's kind of late. We've already learned the wrong lessons you know, for a lot of people. Uh, and optimal failure, in contrast, costs us a little and teaches us a lot. So if you invest a small amount of money and you do some quick and dirty experiments and, and they don't work out, you're like, huh, Ooh, okay, that didn't work. Now let's try something different. And it's easier to recover from, from that kind of thing. It's easier to frame it as a learning opportunity than a big epic failure. It's also easier to call it a failure. You know, if you spend 10 years and, and $7 billion developing a helicopter that doesn't fly, can we even call that a failure? Like, we, we need to call that something else. Like, <laughs> that's, that's too yeah. much money and too much time. And so we can't be honest about it. It's harder to be honest about it. But hey, we spent, you know, six months and, and $10,000 trying to develop a prototype and, and it fell apart. Okay, well, that failed. But let's, let's move on to the next thing. We've successfully identified something that didn't work. Um, so, so that's kind of how I tried, tried to frame it. Uh, and the nice thing is, although we can't avoid failure entirely, we can influence the types of failure we expose ourselves to. So if we're planning to spend 10 years and $10 billion on something, that type of project only fails one way. It only fails epic. So what if we did more of this small, you know, fast, inexpensive, and, and simple? So if we focus on speed, thrift, and simplicity, um, when those projects fail and they fail, but they fail optimally. Uh, and again, we can't avoid failure entirely. We can influence the types of failure we expose ourselves to. Uh, and I think that's kind of the, the secret to failing well and, and to learning well. As teams, as small teams working on these rapid innovations, yes, we'll be learning as we go, you know, through optimal failure. And then some, mm-hmm. I'm sure there might be an epic failure, you know, here or there. Sure, sure. Those happen. Yeah, we yeah. go big, you know, so, you know, there's, there's, there might be one, right? And we, we expect failure. But how do we, when we have to tell, you know, the air staff, we have to tell, like, hey, this, this didn't work out. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of high hopes. This didn't work, but this is what we learned. I mean, you got you got to think like that's not going to be received well because they have their expectations, so they have their requirements, their goals, um, they have their pressures as well. Um, how do you alleviate that, or how do you communicate those optimal and epic failures? Yeah, I think there's a couple um, elements to to handling that well. Uh, first, I'm a big believer in a portfolio approach, so we're not going to put all our eggs in one basket. We're going to have a lot of, of, you know, projects ongoing so that if one of them fails, 
like we sort of expect one of them to fail. That way it's not a surprise. Um, we expect some percentage to, to fail. Um, whereas if you put all your eggs in one basket and it fails, oh, that's a tough story to tell. Um, the second thing is, you know, frequent and regular updates. You know, we want to be open and clear and transparent with the status of things. Um, the other thing is having a short timeline. Um, that way, if it's going to fail, it's going to fail quickly. We're going to get to that failure as, as quickly as we can, and, and we'll, we'll make it as visible as we can, as, as, um, as transparent and as immediately as we can. Um, so that way, there's less of, a, of an emotional sunk cost. And when we have less of an emotional sunk cost, that is, you know, that, that emotional commitment we have, man, I'm, I'm really excited about this project. I've been, I've been working on this project for a really long time. I don't know what would happen to my identity if it failed. Like we want to avoid that. You do want people to be invested and emotionally committed to the project, but again, more to the portfolio and to the overall progress rather than any individual step or any individual piece of it. So I think all of those together, you know, um, constraining your, your approaches, uh, moving fast, having a portfolio, uh, and then being clear and upfront and honest before you even begin, this might fail. As soon as we know that it's failed, we will let you know and we will pull the plug and we'll move on to the next thing in the portfolio. Like it's kind of have a systematic, a systemic approach to, to managing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, it covers a lot of like the major major points I wanted to, to dig into today. Um, are there any other like final thoughts that you have? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we kind of walk through uh, lift real briefly. I mean, the, the main message of that book uh, is study failure to, to study failure is, is just an absolute um, critical step in, in innovation. And so in the book, what I try to do is, is make the case for why we should study failure and then show some examples of how to study failure. Like, what does it look like to do a methodical, you know, rigorous study of failure? How can we uh, normalize failure? Right, and, and that's a big piece of it. Is like I like to use that word failure, and that word failure makes a lot of people really uncomfortable, and we need to get over that. We need to recognize that sometimes we will, you know, try stuff and it doesn't work out the way we wanted it to. And to call it anything other than a failure is, is dishonest and, and masks the, the data and makes it harder to learn. But when we say, huh, I tried this, it didn't work. That's a failure. What can I learn about it next? Like now you're setting yourself up to really learn and improve and, and get better. Uh, and so uh, the, the first chapter in the book uh, is mostly about a guy named Octave Chanute who just has one of the coolest names in the world, Octave <laughs> Chanute. Um, uh, interesting bit of uh, personal history. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my dad was stationed at Chanute Air Force Base in Illinois. Uh, I was there as a five-year-old, I think. I had no idea what a Chanute was, um, but you know, fast forward 20-some years and I'm flipping through this book. I'm like, oh, there was a guy named Chanute? Well, what did, I, I used to live on, on an Air Force Base named after him. Um, so he, he basically wrote a book called Progress in Flying Machines that documents 400 years of failed aviation experiments. Everybody who did anything to try and you know, put human beings into the sky, he, he studied it, he collected these stories, he documented it. And if, if two people kind of did the same type of experiment, he would write about them both and say, this too did not work. Um, but as he, as he assembled all this failure data, he was able to identify the dead ends 
like, ooh, you know, gluing feathers onto your wings, we can probably stop doing that. Yeah, that does you know, not work. <laughs> that, that is not essential. Uh, flapping wings, yeah, probably also not a good idea. Um, and he was able to identify which of these experimenters were moving in the right direction. Oh, small, simple experiments with fixed wings and rotary propellers. Like those seem to be making the most progress. Let's do more of that. And that's an essential piece of sort of the scientific method and, and solving hard problems. Uh, and again, he wrote his book at a time when no one had solved the problem of flight. The only thing he could study was failure. Uh, and identifying the dead ends, don't do those anymore. That saves us a lot of time and effort and resources because we can stop doing that. Identifying the most promising paths, that gives us guidance on how to make our next investment. So again, speaking to the idea of how do we educate senior leaders on this type of stuff, you can put both of those on the table. You can put real data on the table, less of A, more of B. Uh, and then that helps shape investment decisions and training and, and, and all of that. Uh, so that's like the number one uh, message that, that goes through the whole book is studying failure. Uh, and then of course, the, the importance of diversity and inclusion as uh, a critical enabler of innovation is, is the other big message from the book. Dan Ward with the Yoda wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, you know, build droids, not death stars. You know? Right. That's, and, that's my uh, motto. <laughs> <laughs> and stay focused and diverse and not, you know, not just in your projects, as just said, but definitely in your people. And mm, for sure. Um, don't be scared of failure. Right. Be honest with it. Call it, call it failure. Drop the uh, F-bomb, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. Let's fail. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> let's keep on innovating. <laughs> and hopefully, like, hey, at some point in the future, maybe we'll do, like, uh, you know, when your next book comes out or um, if there's anything that, you know, in the innovation space that, you know, that you want to talk about. Um, so I do uh, have a new book. Uh, it's called the, the Toolbox of Innovation. Love uh, it. It's me and six other authors from MITRE. Uh, it's, it's a choose-your-own-adventure book. Um, did you ever read those choose-your-own-adventure books when you were a kid? E uh, you know... Not I didn't, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so it, it's written in the second person. So the reader is the main character. And like you walk into a room, if you want to open the red door, you know, turn to page 27. If you want to go the other way, turn to page 52. And it just sort of walks you through like building your team, developing your idea, using MITRE's innovation toolkit to solve problems and collaborate. And uh, so we haven't officially launched it yet. That'll, I think we're, we're going through the final like public review process. But we're planning to launch it later this month. Um, that'd be fun to maybe have a couple other folks, some of the other authors come on the show too. Wonderful. Talk about like the book itself and the process of writing it. Let's uh, do it. I'm, yeah, I'm, cool. I'm so down for that. I mean, let, awesome. let's, let's make it happen. All right. Good stuff, man. Thanks again so much. This is a blast. Thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye. <laughs> we'll see you. Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Please follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Also visit us at www.tesseractaf.com. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseractaf.com.